Amen. You guys can have a seat. And actually, I'm going to go ahead and dismiss our kids to Kids City. Um, and really uh, excited about this series. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Life Church. And really uh, glad to have you here if this is your first time. Um, as Michelle mentioned earlier, there are blue cards on your chair. If you don't mind just filling that out, dropping it in the offering basket later as we go by, as it goes by, that'll be your gift to us today. Uh, and that'll just allow me uh, and our other pastor, Mike, to just connect with you guys and to learn your story. You can ask questions about the church if you're interested. Uh, we promise not to hound you. It's really, uh, you know, just coffee on us. Um, I shaved my mustache. I know uh, November's not over until tomorrow, but I knew that we were going to have um, guests in the audience, and I didn't want to scare you. Uh, the dead rat that was on my lip was just like, I just couldn't look in the mirror anymore. So uh, hashtag Mike's fault. If you've been following us on Facebook, uh, see some of you guys are h- hanging it in there and, and keeping your mustache, but I just I couldn't do it, man. I had to, it had to go. Um, so Linda, Linda wouldn't kiss me anymore. Um, so really excited about uh, our Christmas season that we've got going uh, with our new uh, sermon series called Expectations. And really, it is, it's a chance for our community. We're a new church. We've been around for a little bit over a year. And it's a chance for us to start off the Christmas season not by saying, how much am I going to consume for myself? But what am I expecting for God to do uh, in the lives of the people around me? And how, how, can I, how can I actually contribute towards the richness of other people's lives in this season? Um, and so we really are taking seriously the, the mantra that giving a lot of times is better than receiving. And so there's a level of expectation that we're building into our sermon series. So I just want us to grab a hold on to that. And this is also a great chance to invite people to our services on your uh, chair are these really neat invite cards. If you just um, have a chance to read the back and it gives people a chance to, to know that we're going through uh, you know, uh, a season of celebrating uh, Christmas for what it is. And so real quick and easy way for you guys to do that. Um, I want to make a couple announcements, uh, two things before we jump into the message today. Uh, it's just such a, a life-changing passage in the scriptures. I want to make sure that we reserve enough time for that. Um, but uh, before we do that, I want to uh, talk a little bit about our annual report, uh, and uh, this is kind of businessy. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but if you guys uh, are on our newsletter, we released an annual report, just kind of the where the church is at and what we're doing and some neat things that happened this past year, what we're looking forward to the new year. And so uh, really um, on the screen here is just some things that we're looking forward, we're expecting in 2015, uh, not anything that is going to be, you know, outside of, you know, what we've been experiencing, but we're saying, yes, you know, yes, God, we want to, we want to, we want to receive more. We want to be a part of more. And so a lot of the things that are up here are just really, um, what we're already doing, but we're saying, God, even more. And so in regards to our leadership team, um, something really neat that we're really praying about is where can we begin uh, engaging and loving uh, in the other parts of the world in the name of Jesus. And so we're actually putting a team together to visit Vietnam in May. And so if you're interested in being a part of that, let me know. Uh, so a lot of other things that we're working through, um, you see that we're uh, multi- multiplying body life, not just our groups, but the whole concept of what does it mean to be the church. Uh, we're praying and we're planning what does it look like for us to uh, be a church that's reaching out to the next generation. And so we're also looking for a facility. And I want to show a picture of a facility um, that we have been praying about. And so we've been meeting in here for about 13 months 
And we've been asking God to open up a door for a space where we can not just meet in, but do ministry from. And so this is a picture of a facility um, downtown that we've been looking at and praying over and uh, working with our board, uh, just saying, you know, what does it look like for us to be in a space like this? That's Dan Chan. He is our realtor and just a fantastic relationship with him. So uh, nothing official yet, uh, but we have been pursuing uh, just conversations with uh, the landlord and uh, just pray that God will open up doors uh, for us. Uh, it will be a leap of faith for us to be anywhere outside of this building. Um, our, our relationship with the K-Club will continue on, but this is going to allow us as a church to, um, to continue to, to make more disciples, to be tr a training center, and then also to be a place in which the community can use as well. And so really excited about that. Some of you guys had a chance to visit this building with us. And so if you have any questions, we'll, we'll, we'll post more information about that as we move forward. Uh, and please don't hesitate to, to ask me or Mike, uh, about, um, the, the building. Next picture, um, is, um, go ahead. All right. Yes. Uh, that is not Justin. <laughs> um, it was a risky picture to post. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I don't know if you guys have been following, uh, the headline news for CNN and other news outlets, but, uh, you know, every, a lot of, uh, this week was talking about what's going on in Ferguson. For some of you guys have never been to that part of North America. Ferguson is a city in, uh, uh, Missouri. It's a suburb of, don't take pictures. It's already on Facebook, so it doesn't matter. Um, and, um, you know, uh, you, you know, the, the riots that have happened there and the issues that are going on and, and I thought about, uh, this is a good teaching point for us as a church, uh, even though we're so far removed from Ferguson, we aren't removed from the kinds of things that are happening in Ferguson. Um, and I'm learning that in Canada, there are certain things that uh, we talk about and other things that we don't talk about. And so um, I'm encouraging us to talk about these issues. Whether or not you feel like there's injustice involved or not, um, this is a very important issue. And so... Um, I, us being a multicultural church, I think it's worth us just having a, um, a, a biblical understanding of why um, issues like Ferguson matter so much. And so whether or not you think there was an injustice or not an injustice, um, let, me, let me help you understand this a bit more. This is me. I grew up in the hood of Detroit. I know it's hard to, you know, to, uh, to see that, but I, I'm, I'm pretty hood through and through. And these are my best friends growing up. And so, um, and uh, we, we were so poor. Like, I don't know if you guys grew up in the 90s like I did, but uh, uh, starters were the jackets that, you guys remember starters? Okay, we were so poor. We can afford starters. We, we bought pro player jackets. And pro players were like the knockoffs. They were like the L.A. gear of, of jackets. And so um, these were, this is uh, our days. We, were, we weren't thugs, but in, you know, there were times when we wanted to be thugs. And so... Like we were pretend thugs, um, and um, and so uh, we were very influenced. You know, my city that I grew up in in Detroit was ninety percent black, so it was just it was just you know I walked around and everybody was black. My high school was ninety percent black, and so uh, we mimicked the culture that we were in, and that you know we talked you know uh, like an urban um, inner city kid, and we looked like an urban inner city kid, and. We dreamt and thought like an urban inner city kid. And so we went out to the suburbs, we went to the mall, we felt like an urban inner city kid. And uh, because we dressed this way and we talked a certain way, uh, you know, uh, shop owners were afraid of us. Uh, shop owners had no clue that 
Sia on the left would one day be a manager in an engineering firm, that I would be the valedictorian of my high school, and that Josh was a pastor's kid that eventually would um, become a computer engineer. And so uh, it was, but based on how we looked and the way that we dressed and talked, uh, that was the reactions that we would get all the time, okay? And so, there, you know, here's the truth. We mimic black culture. And by association, uh, in certain spheres and circles, that, that was the backlash that we received. If you want to mimic black culture, then you would be treated like those who are in black culture. And so, um, having grown up reading Malcolm X, um, Langston Hughes, Maya Angelou, like, I, under, I understood a little bit of that struggle. Um, and so, um, there were times when people looked at me and there's like, uh, my black friend says, you know, you're, you don't understand our struggle. You're just white like everybody else, right? Uh, there were times when my white friends looked at me and they said, you're way too hood to be, like, you're not preppy. Like, <laughs> and so <clears throat> that was just uh, the neighborhood that we grew up in. And let me explain to, to some of us that maybe you have a hard time what's going on in um, understanding what's going on in Ferguson. Um, you know, it's like this kid who's always being beat by his uncle. You know, he's just constantly being beat by his uncle, and that was his history. And even though it's been years since his uncle's beaten him, um, just when his neighbor goes to part his hair, he has this, like, reaction, right? And for a lot of people, that's life. And whether or not there's injustice involved or not, that's just the way it is. I'm not saying it's right, and I'm not saying that it's justifiable for anything. But that's how a large segment of our society lives in. If you trace even the blacks in um, Canada here in Toronto to the Caribbeans, there is, there is a history that we have to honor and respect and we have to uh, try to understand. And so um, I, I say this because we are a very multicultural church and that we have been gifted to be multicultural. Just look around you real quick. I'm just looking around you real quick. All right? Um, awesome. I love this. This is, this is neat. I grew up in an all-Asian church. Um, in an all-black city, which is interesting. Um, and so I want to say a couple of things to encourage us um, as we reflect on issues like Ferguson. And, uh, you know, there have been issues similar in Toronto. Just in Brampton this past summer, a young um, black man was shot who was unarmed, right? So we're walking through all these issues and talking about what does it mean for us. Uh, and so the next time you sit at a table and there's rice there instead of bread, or there's a pot roast instead of dim sum. I want you to begin to process this through the lens of the kingdom and not so much through the lens of your own preferences. Whenever there's a tragedy and whenever we think there's injustice involved, <clears throat> here's five things as a pastor I want to just uh, counsel us with. Number one is mourn with those who mourn. Okay? Don't know what's going on, but if somebody's mourning, let's just first mourn with those who mourn. That's just out of the book of Romans. Number two is empathize before you give your opinion. Everybody's got an opinion on something. But before you let those words come out, you know, empathize. Uh, three, um, not, every, not every injustice is racism, right? But every injustice is sin. You can't always cry racism, but every instance of injustice is sin. Number four is this, ask the question, why is this broke and how am I contributing to the brokenness, whether in word or in deed or even in thought, right? How am I contributing to the brokenness? And number five, uh, am I making anything other than Christ and his kingdom my primary identity? 
There is oftentimes when we are the ones that are being uh, abused or oppressed that we hold on to that right and say, you know, I'm a person of color. I'm a person of this background. And, you know, we, hurt on, we hold on to that hurt. And I just want to gently counsel us that uh, you are, if you belong to Jesus, a citizen of another country that transcends any kind of race, gender, any kind of social class. That is your primary identity. And so when you are hurt or you are oppressed as a people or as a person or as a social class, I want you to remember this, that you are a person of dignity, that you can rise above the noise of how uh, we have another enemy that wants to frame this conversation for us. And the best thing that you can do is rise above that. And so this will apply to any person of color, white, black, First Nations, it doesn't matter. If you belong to Jesus, you are a citizen of a different country. And that gives you a different way to look at it. And so I want to lead us in a time of prayer, and then we'll jump into the message for today. God, um, just praying for our church, let us be a united church where uh, you can be whoever you are culturally and be embraced and loved and celebrated. Uh, God, for those of us who have grown up in an ethnic church or in a homogenous church and We're learning what it means to rub life with those that are different from us. Lord, help us to give up our preferences, but at the same time, help others to give up their preferences for us. Help us to be a community that's united around who you are, Jesus. You made yourself low so that many people would be welcomed into the house of God. God, help us to do the same. We pray for Ferguson for other uh, people, groups that are experiencing uh, oppression, perceived oppression, whatever it is, Lord, that you bring peace and healing. And that, God, we would also be agents of peace and healing. Lead us this morning as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, Well, uh, if you have looked at any local news this week... uh, the Gomeshi scandal is uh, unfolding even more, and I don't know if you guys have been following that. Any, I don't know if you guys are fans of um, Gomeshi, Gian Gomeshi. He was a very popular uh, host of a CBC uh, program called Q, uh, actually kind of a, a rising star in, in Toronto. And so he was arrested for recently, in the, I think it was maybe a, a week ago, right? He was arrested finally for uh, charges of sexual assault. And, uh, you know, CBC let him go about a month ago. And so just a lot of stuff going on. So here's the truth. And I'm not slamming Gomeshi. I'll talk about him a little bit later. I'm not slamming Gomeshi. He actually used to live in this neighborhood. Um, but uh, Gomeshi lived a very scandalous life. I mean, he, he just did. Uh, in a different way, not in the same way, in a different way, Jesus also lived a very scandalous life. Okay? Uh, his life was very full of scandal. As a matter of fact, the, the story that we, uh, that Matt read this morning, actually, it seems like, as, you know, 2,000 years later, this story is like, oh, it's such a great story about, you know, this wayward son comes home, is embraced by his father, and we love him, melts our heart, and makes, you know, makes us want to go home and call dad or something like that, right? And so this story and stories like this got Jesus killed. It was a scandalous story. It's hard to see, right? 
But this story actually got Jesus killed. The first two verses in this passage, you have to really pay attention to, or else you misunderstand the point of what Jesus is saying. He says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with him. So tax collectors and sinners over here. All right, I'm not judging you. I'm just saying. All right. And then the really like religious Pharisaic and the scribes are over here. And let me just, for those of you guys who didn't grow up here in this story, uh, let me just kind of give you some background. Uh, the, the empire, the Roman empire overtook half of the world at this point. They were the largest empire. They had this massive landmass that they had to govern. They had to, how did they keep their borders safe? How did they keep peace among their people? How did they do that? Because if you were in Rome and you needed to get to, let's say, Turkey, it would take you six months if there was a rebellion to squash that. So there's only one way in which you can keep peace and make sure that your rule ruled over your, your entire land, and that was to create a massive army. Right? And the only way to support that massive army was to tax people to death. And the best way to recruit tax uh, uh, collectors were to recruit it from among the people. And so there were a group of people who were Jews and they were collecting taxes for this government that was oppressing their very own people. Not very like guys. This was not the American IRS. This is worse. This is like the, a strong betrayal. And then among them also are sinners. There was a general categorization that the Jews used to use uh, during this century to categorize people like prostitutes, adulterers, people who were sick and due to what they thought were their sins. All right? So it was this like, really crazy way to categorize people. And they were just thrown in this, this category of sinners. And so Jesus actually hung out with these people quite a bit. And then there is another group of people who were, they, like, you think you've memorized John 3.16 and you're proud of yourself, right? So the Pharisees and the scribes memorized the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Quote Numbers 3, verse 14 for me, and then he just quotes it like, okay, all right? I mean, you cannot out-Bible quiz these guys, okay? And so they were together. You would never have, you would, you and I have never seen a group that was as heinous or as pious as this group. And they're all together and Jesus gets a chance to preach to them. Right. And uh, we'll learn this over the next couple of weeks, but this parable actually, uh, although it starts off talking about this group over here, Jesus is actually sharing this parable to this group over here. Right. He's trying to prove a point that the the people that you demonize, that you're just like them. And that's why Jesus got killed. This was in this fuzzy story of uh, this homecoming. From that point on, after Jesus told this parable and parables like this, the religious leader of the, of the days, and it makes me scared because I am a religious leader, okay, that it was the religious leaders similar to me and people in my office that begin to, to think, how do, we, how do we kill this guy? And so that's the scene that, you know, this is like, I was just in the States spending American Thanksgiving, and I have my cousins that are <laughs> that chase women and booze, and then I have my other cousins that teach Sunday school. And it was interesting having Thanksgiving together, all right? So this is the context in which Jesus is uh, sharing this story. And actually, if, you, uh, if we start to kind of think through, analyze the characters in the parable here, uh, you'd be surprised how much we can relate to the characters in this story. All right. I don't know which one you relate to, but kind of the younger brother types 
every time the Bible is shared, the younger brother types tend to feel a little bit guilty. Right? They tend to feel like, ah, oh, it's me. The older brother types tend to be like, that's him. I, I need it, this podcast, I need to send it to my cousin. Or this, so if you're, I don't know where you're thinking, but I mean, if you're like, kind of like, oh man, like you're talking about me again, I mean, this is a potential where you'd be a young brother type. If you're like, oh, he's talking about my wife again, then you're probably the older brother type. <clears throat> so um, the question is, what's going on today? We're going to ask the question, what's going on in the mind of the younger brother? Let's just call him Junior. We're just going to call him Junior just to make it easy for us, right? It doesn't appear that Junior had daddy issues. Some psychologists say daddy issues cause wild living, all right? So it doesn't appear that way. It seems like actually later that the story indicates the opposite, right? It's the father's strength and love that later heals and restores Junior. So I don't think it's necessarily the father's fault. Junior wasn't a victim of being underprivileged because it appears that he had everything he wanted, I mean, he really did. As a matter of fact, his story seems to affirm what other psychologists say, that when you're overprivileged, that could also lead to wild living. All right, so it's just, it doesn't matter. Underprivileged, overprivileged, like there's something about you where if you're not living in a right relationship, uh, then you're going to end up on Jerry Springer or something like that. So um, we can't demonize Junior, though. You can't. As a matter of fact, that's the point of Jesus' story. He's using the parable to remind religious people that you're not better than the people that you demonize on a day-to-day basis. And this should, this should change the way. Some of us are in the service industry. And you work in the city and you service people every day. And you know the types of people you like to service and the types of people that you don't like to service, right? And I think Jesus is saying that this is a heart issue. Not so much a behavior issue, but it's a heart issue. <clears throat> um... <clears throat> As we go through the story, Jesus explains that uh, Junior uh, asked his father to split his inheritance and to divide it to both sons, right? The details aren't there, uh, but if we read into this story a little bit more, um, it, I don't think it's going to damage the story. But let's compare Junior to like a very ambitious investor. You know, he works on Bay Street and he's very ambitious, right? And so um, he just knows that dad is very conservative. Like dad, he, dad is okay. You know, he, dad's from, let's say Thunder Bay or something like that. Okay, let's say this is happening in Thunder Bay. All right, I'm, I'm, hopefully I'm not offending people already. I've never been, uh, but, you know, uh, so, or let's say uh, like Sunridge, okay? Uh, Sunridge, Muskoka. And uh, so dad's very conservative. He's never going to. And so Junior's like, no, dad, we can do better. So he said, like, give me my share and I, let, me, let me go to Toronto and let me make the investment. Okay? And so what he does is he makes his way to, to Toronto, let's say, <clears throat> and he begins to, to, to start up his business or whatever it is and because he knows that he can't stay in, in Thunder Bay. Like he's not made for Thunder Bay, right? And so he's investing. And what happens is this. He realizes that oh, this is harder than I thought. Sitting living sucks. It's expensive. Transit sucks. People are mean sometimes, right? This is not Thunder Bay, like, or this is you know, whatever it is that he's coming from. And so he's realizing that this is hard. And so his successes, he rewards himself extremely. So, it's, you know, what do you do? Happy hour, right? So he rewards himself in that way. But for his failures, what does he do? He medicates himself. And so the booze. And the women. And this is the way that Junior lives. It's a reward system when he's successful. And a medication system 
when he's failing. And I just wonder how many juniors we have in Toronto. Like how many of us have lived this junior life in this city? How much of our culture and our economy is catered towards junior types? Not saying everybody is a junior type, but I'm saying there's a lot of us out there. All right. Uh, it's pretty apparent that in the parable, Jesus meant for the Father to symbolize God. In a few weeks uh, from now, we're going to talk about the Father's heart, so I won't spend a lot of time. But I want you to see the sacrifice that the Father had to make. In verse 12, it indicates that he divided not just property, but his life. The, the Greek word for property here is bios, where we get the word biology from. The father divided his livelihood and gave it to his sons, all right? And so by Junior asking for an early inheritance, which is unheard of in a Middle Eastern culture, unless you consider your father already dead to you. And so he asks, you're dead to me, give me my, give me my share. So the older brother, according to Middle Eastern culture of the time, the older brother would get two-thirds, the younger brother get one-third. That's just how it was. So, fine. So Junior took one-third. Dad, you're dead to me. I'm off to, to do my thing. The father lost everything. In verse 31, we didn't read earlier, but it says that, he says to his older son, he's like, what, why are you upset about the party that I threw for your younger brother? Everything I have, you already, it's already yours. You own everything that I have already. The father has nothing. It's, it's all the older brothers at this point. And then the fourth thing about the father is that you, you realize in this story that he is anxiously and brokenheartedly waiting for his son to come home. Like my son, is, he takes, he's 13, both 12 and 13. They take the, the subway to, to school. And when they're not home by 4.30, like I'm anxious, right? So imagine Junior doing his thing. Imagine, you know, in whatever, you know, urban or suburban uh, town that your dad is in, and you're in Toronto, and you're doing whatever you want to do. Imagine how anxious and brokenhearted dad could be at times. Um. You know, my favorite movie is Warrior. I think I've talked about Warrior once or twice or maybe eight times. Um, it's about a father named Patty, and he has two sons, Brandon and Tommy. I've already ruined the story for you plenty of times, so I'm just, yeah. So um, Tommy and Brandon uh, are kind of estranged from their father, Patty. And Tommy comes back home, and uh, but when he came back home, he wasn't looking for a relationship with his dad. Tommy was a fighter. Both Tommy and Brandon were wrestlers, and their dad trained them. And then both of them, you know, went to to fight uh, or to uh, to uh, wrestle in, in high levels. So Tommy came back from a war, and he was looking for his father. But he came and 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 uh, he was so upset at his father. Uh, but he knew that the only person that could train him right was his father. So he said to his father, "He's like, I'm not I'm not looking for a relationship. I just need you to train me." And Patty was broken hearted. Like, you could see just the look in his eyes that all Tommy wanted was just a trainer. And so Patty's telling all these stories of, hey, remember when we did this as a kid? And, and so, and, and Tommy, he says this. He says this to Patty. He says, I'm serious. We train. That's it. I don't want to hear a word about anything but training. You understand? You want to tell your war stories? You can take them down to the VFW. You can take them to a meeting, to a church, or wherever the heck it is that you go nowadays. But all Tommy wanted, what his dad could offer him. But he didn't want his dad. 
And there's a way in which we live our lives, even as religious people, where the gifts of God are more important than the relationship with God. And that you can, I mean, for those of us who grew up in church, you can pray. And if you follow the trails of your prayer, does it actually lead to the person of God? Or does it lead to the gifts of God? Because if it leads to the gifts of God, there may be a tinge of junior type in your heart. Right? If we're constantly just, right, so there, there's that journey where we just say, God, I'll walk with you for as long as I get X, Y, and Z. Um, the pathway to self-discovery oftentimes, oftentimes will marginalize the people that we care for the most in our lives. Um, there's a lot of positive things about junior types. A lot of positive things. I mean, I think about Toronto. I mean, uh, and this is like I'm over, I'm oversimplifying things. Like I'm stereotyping. Um, but you'll get the general uh, gist of it. But there's so many things about our city that benefits from junior types, free-spirited, ambitious people, shoot first, target later. Like, I mean, we, we, we benefit from these kinds of people. I mean, think, think the Annex, the Kensington, like all these neighborhoods, like King West, Queen West, like all these are like born out of like the junior types that are free-spirited and don't want to be limited by whatever it is, right? A lot of creative energy. And here's the secret of the parable. If you find that this is who you are and you don't like to be confined by religion, you don't like to be confined by uh, people's uh, expectations of you, this is you'll find uh, the, the secret of this parable is surprising. That God loves these kinds of people too. Like it's not God's job to try to box people in. That as a matter of fact, like he's created creative types this way. He's created you to be this way. He's created your sister to be a little bit, you know, use the adjective that you want to use, like spunky or free-spirited, whatever it is, right? Uh, that God has created them to be this way. He loves it. But sometimes, like good parents, God has to watch their children spiral out of control. And it's hard to watch. But sometimes the energy and the ambition of us junior types, it outpace our character and our integrity. And it's dangerous when you're more talented than you are a person of integrity. Dangerous combination. Um, Lyndon McIntyre, he's been, he was a long-standing journalist with the CBC. He, he, he basically left the CBC uh, two weeks ago. And he wrote a very uh, insightful article as to why he left. Anybody, did you guys follow Lyndon McIntyre? I mean, he's a, um, and uh, he wrote an article for, for, for the Huffington Post. And uh, he describes why Gian Gomeshi and the culture at CBC became more than he could take. All right. And so I'm not trying to slam CBC or Gomeshi at all. All right. But McIntyre makes a point. It's kind of lengthy. Let me read this. But he's writing this about Gomeshi. It says, Jian was a celebrity, a source of pride for Persians, model of success and possible support for aspiring celebrities and stars, or people who just wanted a shot at a career. But his popularity, his celebrity, was also evidence of institutional vitality that could be attributed to the quality of management at the corporation. So the CBC loved him because it made them look good. So a celebrity can be obnoxious. What else is new? They're fragile people. Great gifts come embedded in complex and often difficult personas. 
ego-driven temper tantrums can easily be attributed to professional standards that are admirably rigorous. Demands for personal service. Give me a coffee. Park my car. Do my laundry. Aren't you glad you're not Gomeshi's intern? Uh, can become acceptable uh, in the context of heavy schedules imposed on the important life of a media celebrity. Year after year, it was no secret at the CBC that Gian Gomeshi was difficult that his attitudes and many of his demands made the program, Q, an unpleasant, stressful place to work. But he was a celebrity, and his program was a success. Two valuable and increasingly rare assets at the CBC. And so for years, good people tolerated what was the dark side of the star persona. This is not unprecedented. As a matter of fact, it is more common than not. I think celebrity, in all but exceptional cases of personal integrity and healthy measures of humility, always have a dark side. We're, we're not slamming Gomeshi, but McIntyre is making a very important point. That when you rely on your giftedness and your resources and you neglect your character and your integrity, life has a funny way of arranging you to eventually be hanging out with the pigs in the pig field. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. But if you allow your character and your integrity to slide, life has a fun, you, you'll find out one, one day, you're, I don't know what Gomeshi's thinking, he hasn't released a whole lot. But he, he, he in some ways he has. But it's no surprise when you find yourself at the end of the day slopping with the pigs. Right? Now here's the hope. Being with the pigs isn't that bad. It's not, it's not that bad being with the pigs. Because it's usually when you're with the pigs, when you're at the bottom of your wine bottle or the six pack is over or you know, you've had everything that you've wanted right? and it still doesn't satisfy. That it says here actually in verse 17, that he came to his senses. It was at that point that he came to his senses. He says, man, I'm, I'm better than this. I know I'm better this, than this. He began to long for home. He said, I remember when I was in dad's home. And this is, oh, this is what we ate. Like, I'm better than this. Ah! Have you had that moment where you're kind of like, why do I keep doing this to myself? Like, I know I'm better than this. And that feeling of longing for home, longing for that place of comfort, there's a regret even. And uh, C.S. Lewis writes this, that the sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to reach the mountain to find the place where all the beauty came from, my country, the place where I ought to have been born. Do you think it all meant nothing, all the longing, the longing for home? For indeed, it now feels like going, but like going back. Some of us need to go home. Some of you are thinking, ah, oh, does that mean I go back like to Thunder Bay? Is that what you're saying? There's something about your ambition that needs to die. You've walked upon, I love the song Oceans. Love that song. Like, we sing it from time to time. It's a song about, like, I'm fearless. 
and I'm going to do this. And it's just going to, you know, we're going to do this. Like, let's do this, right? Some of you have been doing that for a long time. And it's no longer godly ambition. And if it's not godly ambition, go home. Because when it's not godly ambition, it's God saying, hey, it's time for you to pull back. And if you needed permission to know that it's time to go home, I hope this morning that you, whatever going home looks like for you, whether it's calling up mom and dad, whether it's just getting before your face before God and say, ah, I've lived this junior life for such a long time. You find out what it means to go home. There are two ways to come home. Um, and as you read through the parable, the first way to come home is at your own expense. And Junior just begins to think, okay, I can't go home and be the son again, but if I go home and if I work and pay my dad off, even if I'm not in the house, he's got to accept me close, so I've got food guaranteed, I've got clothing guaranteed, so uh, I think this could work. All right? Okay. So let me go back on my own expense. Let me pay it off. All right? Imagine if that was how the father allowed him to come back home. Every single day of his life, he would be filled with fear. The moment that he stopped performing, his dad would let him go, just like an employee, right? But that was the best plan that he could come up with in going home. And for some of us, that is your idea of Christianity. That if I can just go, and if I can just work, and if I can do the right thing, then the, then the father would be pleased with me like he is with a good employee. And let me say this, that that's not the heart of Christianity. For those of us who are fear-filled and we have anxiety about, you know, the Bible and living up to the standards of God, let me say this, that is not the life that God's planned for us. Not the life. The second way of coming home is grace. Not, not tolerating the person's, like, craziness or the brokenness in their life and allowing them to live in it. But instead what the Father does is He welcomes in junior with forgiveness. The Father brings him in with forgiveness. Because in forgiveness, you welcome people in at your own expense. When you forgive somebody, you, you absorb the offense. And that's why for some of us, it's really hard to forgive people. It hurts when you forgive people. Because it doesn't mean that you're just admitting that they're wrong, but you're admitting that I'm taking some of their faults. By forgiving. And that's exactly how the father brought him in. The father says, at my expense, Junior. And so this is, look, look at what, eight things. Number one, the father felt compassion. Number two, the father ran towards him. It's like the dad was on the porch waiting for the son to come. He ran towards him. Like my dad would have ran towards me and clotheslined me. But instead of clotheslining him, what does he do? He runs towards him, and it says in the Greek that he fell on his neck. Like he fell on his neck, and he embraced him, and then he kissed him. Most of our dads would have bit our ear off. And he grabs the best robe in the house to cover Junior's shame. And he gives him the signet ring to remind him that you represent the family still. 
And he puts shoes on Junior's feet to cover the dirt and the shame of being in the mire and the muck. And they hook up the sound system and they throw the fattest party that they've ever seen in that neighborhood. And they kill the most expensive animal. Who pays for the brother's debt? Like, is Junior having to pay for this debt? Remember what happened at the beginning of the story when the father divided up the inheritance. He gave it two-thirds to the older brother, one-third to the younger brother. The father had nothing left. We'll talk about this in the next couple of weeks, but there's a reason why the son came back and he was so angry. You footed the bill for his party. It was your, it was your cow <laughs> that we killed for your party. Somebody pays your expenses. And Jesus is reminding everyone, you, you don't foot the bill. You don't foot the bill for your sins. The father and his son foots the bill for your sins. At the heart of the gospel is this. You are accepted way beyond you could ever want for yourself. Our, our reaction is this. Uh, a party for me? No. No. For, for me? Like I just, prostitutes while living, you throw me a party? No. Right. Let me give you a word for that reaction. That's not humility. That's pride. Because when somebody offers you their best, to honor that offer, say thank you. You receive it. Ben, why don't you guys come up? In the face of shame and embarrassment, when you are shamed and you feel embarrassment, because of your own sin, because of your own lifestyle, how eager are you to receive love and forgiveness? Because I would venture to say this, that it's probably more your pride than God that keeps you from receiving love and forgiveness. Why don't you bow with me for a second here? And just uh, just so we can calm our minds and our hearts and to investigate where's your heart at this morning when you hear the words come home what does it mean to you Some of us don't have a context to understand God as Father because we just have never had a Father in our life. And so it's that plain and simple. For others of us, we are still shocked that God would celebrate what we consider the most heinous people. this afternoon or this morning as we come to the Lord's table which represents a feast a party that God is preparing for all of us 
when we go home, what the Bible calls the wedding supper of the Lamb, remember this. It's with open arms and at the expense of Jesus that that party has been purchased. All expense paid. Don't let your pride keep you from stepping into the party. Uh, Trinity Life, I'm going to speak to you guys, uh, and uh, this is a moment of equipping, all right? So uh, we talk about evangelism, and uh, we talk about uh, loving other people in Jesus' name. This story gives us a resource to do one thing that I promise you would release so much more uh, witness and testimony in your life, and that's this. Be a people of forgiveness. In the way that the Father has forgiven us, imagine if you radically forgave the people in your lives. How much testimony and witness that would bring. I'm not saying be a pushover. I'm saying find a place in your heart where it begins to look like the Father's heart and you just radically forgive. And it starts with the people closest to you. You'd be shocked about how much you're being held back as a person who shares the gospel because you just, you just harbor bitterness towards people. How can you share the good news of Jesus and bring salvation to people when you're constantly harboring regret and bitterness? Here's a really fast application for us this morning. Forgive. Forgive your coworkers, forgive your neighbor, forgive your parents, forgive your spouse. I don't know who you need to forgive. But once you live in and walk in that forgiveness, you would be shocked at the doors that God's going to open for us. Trinity Life is called to be a community of love and of the gospel. Where we lay ourselves down. We lay low. We are low when people come in. It creates a sense of hospitality. It creates a sense of acceptance and forgiveness. We lay low before people and we do what Philippians 2 says. We consider others higher than we consider ourselves. That was the Father's heart towards His Son when He came back home. And I pray that over us, that Lord, we would be people that would put ourselves lower than the people that You've called us to serve. That we would never judge people with religious eyes, but with the Father's eyes.